I think writers, when they're moved to put pen to paper, like I think that also comes from a place where they're really wrangling with a big question. Hello, and welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring, and then we talk about it. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Today, I am as excited as ever to bring you a conversation with writer Fook Tran. His book is Saigon, which is spelled out S-I-G-H-G-O-N-E, a misfits memoir of great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in. It came out in 2020, and he has received many awards and accolades, including the Kirkus 13 diverse nonfiction books to read now, and none other than the 2021 Maine Literary Award for Memoir from the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. Fook Tran is now a Mainer, albeit from away, as am I, and that's the least of what I found in common with him. We both loved books in our childhood. I combed library shelves for Judy Bloom while he focused on perhaps uh, some loftier works, he zoomed right in on a book called Clifton Fadiman's Lifetime Reading Plan. I had never heard of Mr. Fadiman or his book, and so I checked him out in Wikipedia and learned that he too was a child of a father who immigrated from Russia back in the late 1800s. Clifton Fadiman's book played a key role in Fuchs' education, and that is one of the topics you'll hear about today. There is a lot in store, and since Fuchs ended up asking me quite a few questions, too, about the podcast and my writing, let's just get right to it. Fuchs Tran on his memoir, Sai Gone. Welcome, Fuchs Tran. I am so excited to have you on Daring to... Uh, I can't even say the name of my own podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on Daring to Tell today. Thank you so much for coming to, to read to us. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me on, Michelle. It's a pleasure to uh, be here, as it were, yeah, in my yeah, living I room, know, I know. <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> exactly. The virtual ways that we are in. One thing, I don't know, I'll just making reference to the fact that we're all doing so much from home these days, your book, Saigon, an amazing, brilliant, beautiful, really, just really great memoir. I just can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. I will oh, gush a little bit at the top oh, here. <laughs> um, but it came out in 2020, and I'm wondering how the pandemic impacted the release of your book in any way. That must have been a strange thing to have happen as you were getting ready to put this book out. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it affected, um, I guess we're in a safe space here on the internet on a podcast talking about writing. I mean, it's so strange to think about, you know, there's there's no way for me to imagine what the book launch would have been like in a in the normal world um you know we i can pull the veil back a little bit into this you know land that could have been Mm -hmm. you know like i had like a 
six week, you know, like 14 city book tour that was planned. Um, And then in March, they were like, oh, it's not going to happen. I was like, okay. You know, but obviously there's, there were bigger things afoot in March of 2020, you know, Mm -hmm. like we're watching the news and thinking like, what is this pandemic? And um, so, you know, obviously you don't know what you didn't miss. I mean, I, (laughs) I never, I didn't see my book in a bookstore physically or on a shelf until like almost a year and a half after the book had come out. Wow. Um, So that was, yeah, that was super strange. Yeah. And then also, I mean, I think the upside maybe is Zoom kind of broke the space-time continuum, Mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that like I was doing book events in Hong Kong and, you know, West Coast, East Coast, all the different time zones. It was really just bizarre. Um, So in some ways that accessibility was a boon. Right. (laughs) so yeah what's personally curious about that and I think that for a lot of people it meant more reading time yeah I've heard that I've heard that is that true for you I don't (laughs) you know actually that's a good question well and I spent much of the pandemic or the early days of it um my husband and I were moving from Boston to Maine Mm. so we (laughs) were doing a lot of the packing unpacking all that stuff amidst everything so that was a little crazy um but yeah afterwards I did have more time and I have done a lot more reading and in fact I launched this podcast so that was you know I guess a silver lining or or something and was the was the podcast sort of like a, a project that you had had on your mind for a while and the pandemic just sort of was like the kick in the pants that you needed to make it happen, a, so to speak? A little bit. Not, I would say not the pandemic per se, hmm. but that's, I appreciate the question because with my background as a radio producer, I always loved coaching people, reading things, and I've always loved books, and I have been working on a memoir for quite some time, and I love listening to writers read their own work. So I had been listening to a whole bunch of audiobooks, mm-hmm. and I was also in a writing group, like a publicity platform group, and many of the writers were all working on memoirs that they had. So it was this convergence of me meeting a large group of writers trying to publish new memoirs Mm. and me leaving my job and having the time to put out a podcast as sort of a platform building exercise. And I went back in my um, journal and found maybe someday I would do a podcast and I call it Daring to Tell. So I think it's funny that I guess it had been kicking around my head for a while. But yeah, that's kind of how the podcast came in. That's amazing. And is there, um, can I ask? (laughs) I'm I'm so curious. No, 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 no. I just want to know, um, is there a specific um, like lens or era or framing for your memoir? Like, are you, is it like coming of age? Is it sort of just like, how did I get to this place that I'm at now? Or is there, yeah. yeah. So it's about the bigger picture is that I grew up as a Christian scientist. Mm. So growing up Christian science was really challenging and difficult. And it's something that sort of my own coming of age as I came into my 20s and got out of the church. My mom is still very connected to the church, in the church, devoted. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the backstory or the the deeper layer of what it's about. Sure, sure. Where sort of the framing 
that I'm working on was that I had had gastrointestinal surgery, woohoo, um, mm. back in, <laughs> I know, in 2015 when my doctor had found a large polyp that was like heading quickly towards cancer. I am mm. very glad that it wasn't. So I had that removed and my recovery through that has become sort of metaphorical for me listening to my gut, if you will. So mm -hmm. it's like the layers of trusting myself, listening to my gut amidst the background of growing up in this religion that sort of taught me to not trust my gut. Mm. So I guess I have to work on a better ele <laughs> elevator pitch no, for no, it. No, that's good. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. No, thanks for telling me about it. I'm, I'm so, uh, you know, I think like one of the things that for me came unexpectedly, like I think one of the things that came from my writing my book was that I just I love I realized and I knew this before as a tattooer like I just love hearing people's stories oh. and and I think I you know, you know it's like you realize yeah. like how how little you know about people right. and and how rare it is that people have an opportunity to tell their story mm -hmm. and I, I think it's really important for all of us you know both to listen and also to feel validated enough to share our story so thanks thank you for oh sharing that that I, elevator pitch absolutely I <laughs> yeah. and I couldn't agree more I mean I that's sort of why I'm doing this podcast is I think that the chance to share our stories to tell them is at the core of who we are as human beings. And it's interesting you say as a tattooer, so do you get to hear lots of stories? Oh, God, yeah. As oh, people just, are. Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. re yeah. I mean, you really, it's, um, you, you know, not for all of my clients, but mm -hmm. I would say, I would say easily half of my clients are, they're either at, uh, you know, the tattoo you know, process or mm -hmm. the ritual for them is sometimes a cel celebratory ritual, mm -hmm. you know, like, yep. my, you know, I just had a baby or whatever. Yeah. I just graduated or, right. and then sometimes I just retired. <laughs> I'm having a yeah. midlife crisis. Yeah. But then I'll, I would say the other, you know, split is people are at their absolute worst. Right. And it's like this healing process for them. You know, like I lost right. a spouse, I lost a child. And so you're just, you know, you're there to bear witness um, yeah. with your clients as they're going through this process. It's incredibly powerful. I don't know if there's a book in there, but yeah. and I don't think there needs to be, you know, like not right. everything needs to be turned that, into a true. book. That's true. Yeah. But that makes sense because I can see as someone who has zero tattoos and zero intention to ever get one, <laughs> um, well, I can really see, I mean, I think it's a exactly for that reason it's like what is so permanent about you that you want something on your body about mm. it and so i can see how it's something infused with deep meaning um be it positive or negative so mm -hmm. yeah that's that's really interesting i never would have thought of that before but mm. All right. Well, shall we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's you. go. Let's, no, thank let's, you for the. It's. <laughs> no, totally. I love this. Like, it helps to get to know each other a little bit before we get going. I think. Yeah. So for sure. your book Saigon, which uh, came out in 2020, has won a lot of awards. Oozing about it a little bit. Oh, um, thanks. <laughs> one of the things that I loved about it, and that I'm hoping we'll talk about today, is experience as both a reader and a writer, and. In your book, you mention the Clifton Fadiman book, mm. um, and you had a job at the library. So I'm just a little curious if you can share some background about either you as a reader before you 
found that book or how you got the job at the library or sort of what the early <laughs> sure. the early Fook reading yeah. story is. Oh, my Lord. I would say, yeah, that's so funny. So, I mean, I always uh, I enjoyed reading. You know, my father was a lawyer in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And one of the very first things that he did when we came to the United States in 1975 was he got a library card. And we were at the library at least weekly, you mm -hmm. know, and, and in part it was, you know, a way for my dad to acquire English, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. would, and then because we were very poor, you know, anytime, you know, things broke in the house, like the car, the dishwasher, whatever, he would go to the library and borrow the manual and bring right. it home and then sort of wail away on whatever was broken. And so he would always bring me and my brother to the library. And so we just grew up there, you know, it was sort of like yeah. second church. Um, yeah. And... So I was always a reader, you know, and then in the, my middle school years, I just, you know, sort of transitioned over to like comic books and sort of like fantasy stuff. And then, mm -hmm. and then early in high school, like I, the, the very short version is that I, I realized that there was some cachet, I, th I thought, in the classroom in being well-read or at least appearing mm -hmm. to be well-read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, right. so, and so I just started reading sort of like whatever books teachers would assign. I would always do all the assigned reading and then... If a teacher would just like make an allusion to a book in class, I would go to the library, check that book out and read it, you know, which I didn't think was precocious or weird at the time, although everyone tells me that it is weird. But, uh, you know, like yeah. a teacher would make a reference to like Kafka and I'd be like, oh, who's Kafka? And then I would go to the library and read it. Right. And I wasn't a very deep reader, but I would always be able to say like, oh, well, you know, I read The Trial by, you know, Franz right. Kafka and people would be like, who are, you know, as like a yeah. 15 year old kid yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the 80s, you know. Um, and then I got a job at the library. So like that was, I was just like, this is the greatest job ever. <laughs> right, because you had spent so much time there it just seemed so, like. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It was just like a natural fit. And frankly, you know, I would just like sometimes hide in the sacks and just like yes. read a book <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, Perfect. or pick books up off the shelf and yeah. like thumb through them. And then I discovered uh, as I was, our li library was having this like sort of fundraiser sale and they were selling all these discarded titles. And I came across Clifton Fadiman's Lifetime Reading Plan. You know, I mean, just the name yeah. alone. Like right. You come, the Lifetime Reading Plan. I was like, what is this? Exactly. And so I pick it up and I open it up. and I'm like, no way. Like, because I had always wondered, like, what makes a book a classic? Like, who? nobody would tell me, like, what's mm -hmm. in the can. You know, people make these allusions to, like, the Western canon. But, like, right. as a kid, especially as a kid and as a kid whose parents don't even really have any cultural literacy. Like, you can't mm -hmm. ask, like, your parents like, yeah. is this in the canon? Is this not in the canon? Like, you know, Stephen King, not in the canon, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but right. Charles Dickens is like, wait, why? Like, I love Stephen King, you right. know? Right. But then that's so why I found this book. And I thought it was like, like the secret handshake for the Western world. And so I just started reading or trying to read whatever books sort of caught my eye in the list of I think it's like 104 or 107 books that were listed in uh, Fadiman's book. Yeah. Well, that's pretty, I find that really incredible um, because <laughs> as ridiculous. someone who also loved reading, I feel uh, woefully underread, you know, when it comes to the Western canon and mm. literary classics and all that stuff. So I guess, what what did you connect with once you started reading them? Um you know, I think like as a teenage boy or just as a teenager, like I think your angst is very high, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and yep. so I think, and I think in some ways, like I, I think writers, when they're moved 
to put pen to paper. Like, I think that also comes from a place where they're really wrangling with a big question, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think, yeah. um, I, I think for a work to end up in the canon like that, like, I, I don't think this is like a paycheck writer. This is like a person who's like, I've got right. some shit that I've got to work out. Yeah. This is the only way I know how. I don't, I can't afford therapy mm. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I, I mean, and to be fair, like, there were tons of things that I would read that I was, I would read like, uh, you know, 10 pages, 15 pages, and just be like, ugh, you know, and then just toss right. it onto the pile. Yes. Like a kid would, yeah. right? But, but the stuff that really grabbed me was like, you know, sort of the feelings of alienation, you know, like mm-hmm. wrangling with life's big questions about like, who am I? Where do I belong? What is my purpose to life? And, you know, all those things. I mean, like the Scarlet Letter, I mean, like f- for someone yeah. who's like, just feels so alienated from their town, like, I just don't mm-hmm. know if there was a better book written for me right. <laughs> than, right. than the Scarlet Letter. Yeah. It was just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I think it's incredible that, especially the way that the book was put together that you used each one of these classics to sort of exemplify what you were going through in the the grappling with each chapter that was brilliant and as someone I was sort of alluding to again what I identify with a lot is growing up in a small town America kind of situation because I grew up in central Massachusetts and I feel like my town was probably not so dissimilar than Mm. yours it might have been a little smaller I'm not sure but Mm. anyways all of those feelings of the high school and felt very true to me and my high school didn't even make us read books. They would always. Oh, no, are you serious? No, would, really? Yes. Is that hi- are you being hyperbolic? No. That's, oh well, my okay, god. Okay, there was one. There was one <laughs> class that we did. We were supposed to read Tess of the Durbervilles, and mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't get into it. So yeah. the one, the things that I did try to read, I think I just couldn't get myself into. And but for many other books, they would instead of making us read the book, we would see the movie. So we saw a movie of A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> and we saw a movie of The Scarlet Letter. We had seen amazing. all these movies. And I will say, your book made me go, okay, Michelle, you have to go back and read some of these books <laughs> oh my, oh my. at some point. So, and it made me think of even in college, you know, the books that people say, oh, you never read this for pleasure. I worked for Symphony Hall in Boston mm. um, when I was, I went to school at Northeastern. And so I was sitting in the switchboard operator little office and I was reading Henry Miller actually. Mm. And some guy came in to like leave his beeper or whatever they do at the symphony. And uh, he said, you must be reading that for some class. No one reads Henry Miller for pleasure. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm reading it for pleasure. But so that that's my my only bragging rights to Amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I read for pleasure. So I guess that to transition from the reading to the writing, in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that it was your younger brother Lou who mm. suggested you write the book. But when did you start writing? How? What's your writing story? Oh or how gosh. did this book come into play? You know, any of that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, my brother, I think my brother is so good at seeing sort of my aspirational self, mm. you know, even before I, I'm able to see that, you know, like, I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm much more jaded and cynical than mm-hmm. my, my brother's just, he's great. He's mm-hmm. really people like when people meet us, or they've only met me, and then they meet my brother, mm-hmm. like, they'll, they'll come back to be like, 
oh, you're you're the asshole in the family. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. My brother's like really the nice guy. And I, and I say that not in a self in just a very self-aware way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, my brother's just like so great. And, and so like long ago, he just knew that like I loved books and I loved reading and I loved storytelling. And so he was the first person. He was my first literary champion. But like mm-hmm. in a vague way, he was like, you really like should just write a book someday. And I was like, oh, I don't have time. Who's got time for that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, the the book process really just came from, it's all, it all just sort of happened backwards. You know, I, um, and the, and the shortish version is that in 2012, I gave a TEDx talk. Um, And it was, yeah, and it was like the first time I had ever publicly shared my story in in any way. And the reception to it was so powerful. And I was like, oh, I guess people want to hear my story, you know? And so then I started doing live storytelling here in Portland, um, sort of, yeah, in the, in the vein of like the moth, like I did, um, like up in Brunswick, there's the storytelling that happens at the Frontier Cafe. So I did that. It was like once or twice a year, I would craft like a seven minute story, you know, a true life story. And then I would get up on stage and tell it. And so I did that from 2013 till about 2016. Mm And then in 2016, uh, literary agent just sort of cold called me because she had seen the TEDx talk and said, hey, you seem like you've got an interesting story and an interesting way to tell it. You want to write a memoir? (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, I don't know, I guess maybe. (laughs) Um, And so she just asked me to write something. So I just sat down and I wrote the prologue to the book, you know, just as it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just all about, you know, me and this other Vietnamese kid and my feelings for him. Mm, and, And she just really loved it. And so... And so that's where it started. So as like wow. a writer, as a yeah. writer, you know, in air quotes, I I don't know if I've had, uh, you know, like I didn't do like an MFA program mm-hmm. or anything like that, but nor, you know, and I didn't, I don't have a degree in creative writing or writing or of any sort, but, but I sure love to read. And I think, yeah. you know, you, you put enough hours yes. on the other side of the trenches, yes. Um, you kind of have a sense of what you, I, I, you know, and I, I think through the whole process, I just kept thinking, well, what's the story that I would want to read as a reader? Right. Like, just write that. Mm-hmm. And, and at the very worst, it'll just, at the very worst, it'll just be a thing that only you will enjoy. <laughs> right. And at the very right. best, it will be so singular because it's it's tuned to your sensibilities yes. uh, in an authentic way, right? Like I, Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Well, it is absolutely that. Um, and oh, I'm thanks. so glad that you did because, <laughs> it, you know, and, and I was excited to take the class that I took with you on your singular voice. And so I think that the storytelling part of it makes a lot of sense. And I've always loved those same kind of things, the moth, the storytelling yeah. events. So the question I usually ask most writers, but this might be a little different from you for no, you, <laughs> but um, why do you write? I mean, you were asked to, so that could be, yeah. maybe that's it. But um, <laughs> have, you yeah. kept, have, you kept, uh, have you kept writing since? Yeah, I have. I, and I think, uh, you know, I, I, I like to joke that, you know, I, I don't have to write for tenure and my identity is not wrapped up in being a writer. You know, like mm-hmm. I have friends who are writers, you know, in bold, you know, block letters. Right. And so, or they're just driven by this impulse. And and it's not to say that I don't have that impulse, but because there aren't any other external pressures for me. You know, the joke is that I'm the most dangerous person to be writing a book because like, I don't, <laughs> like, uh, what do I care? Like, you know, in some <laughs> ways, I'm just going to write the best person I, to be writing a book, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I kind yeah. of think so. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think I just want to write. Yeah, I just want to write 
books that move me, you know, like, or tell stories that move me. I I think, I don't Mm -hmm. think this is too soon to share now. Like, you know, I think I was uh, right after the memoir came out, you know, I sort of started taking notes on other writing projects and I was really interested in, you know, working on a novel. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I ended up doing like a six month gig working for HBO on a TV show. So like that, yeah. So that chewed up quite a bit of like sort of my writing bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And then I came, I just finished that in October. Um, and then, That's and then, cool. thanks. Yeah. And then, and then I was getting ready to like sort of work on the novel again. And then I was asked to collaborate with uh, an illustrator on a children's book oh. series. Yeah. Uh, and so we just sold that. So I've got, cool. so I just, yeah, to yeah. Harper. Yeah. So Harper Collins literally just last week bought the children's book stuff. So oh, congratulations. Thanks. Really yeah. Exciting. It's so, I mean, I, in some ways it's like, I, I'm not good at staying in my lane, but part of that is that I don't, I don't know. It's like, there's. If that feels really constricting to me. Yeah. Um, and I loved working on the picture book. I just was like, right. you know, this person, again, like asked me like, hey, like, uh, would you be interested in working with my illustrator on this book about a, you know, this thing? I don't, I don't want to say too much more about yeah, it. Yeah, and, no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I just wrote it and they were like, this is great. And, you know, right. so I think I, I'm writing for myself first and foremost, right? Like E.B. White says, right? Yeah, Aud- I know. I, audience I love of one. references to E.B. <laughs> yeah. White too. Yeah. That's, um, you know, I feel like I mean, we live ending in, up like, in Maine for that yeah, reason. You yeah, you can't help it. Yeah. I know. Um, and then the other thing about not staying in your lane is that you also had this love for art, Mm. Um, and so clearly you have your tattoo, are they called tattoo parlors? I feel woeful. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they can, I think, ta- you know, tattoo studio, studio okay. is good. Yeah. Tattoo shop or tattoo Thank studio. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I'm of gonna... course, of course. Um, <laughs> Thanks for asking though. Embarrassing. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah. So you, you do that. That's very, uh, you do the things that clearly you're interested in that, that appeal to you. And mm. I can't remember if it was maybe the, like one of the college interviews you had or that someone had said to you you know you're gonna need to pick one thing Mm. that you do and you Mm -hmm. were kind of like why and as my husband and I have a very dear friend who lives in Chicago and he has made his living as an artist for most of his life but he does a lot of other things too he's a musician he and so a lot of times people who are creative for something they it's not just one thing and why should we have to pick one so I just like the the representation of you know why stay in a lane if you have lots of passions and they all make sense to be followed you know so for sure yeah Yeah. no I and I really appreciate that and I I hope that I can model that for my daughters, you know, mm-hmm. first and foremost, yeah. right? Like the idea and for, you know, students too, um, you know, yeah. like my students, not you know, even though I'm on hiatus from teaching, you know, it's this idea that like we contain multitudes, right? And yeah. <laughs> why yeah. not celebrate them all? And exactly. I just, yeah, I think culturally, I think, I think especially, you know, in a capitalist society, mm-hmm. you know, know, like, it's just constantly like, what is your box? What is your box? I what know. can you monetize? And et cetera, et cetera. Although right. I, I, it seems to me like this next generation, maybe, you know, breaking, breaking all these false binaries that we've been living with, yeah. you know, and, and struggling under for so long anyway. But. Yeah, well, that would be nice. But maybe it sounds cliche, but to follow your passion is how you find the things that you'll then be good at and find your way from there. I don't know. I I feel like that sort of worked for me, Mm. mostly. 
Yeah, yeah. And if it even if it doesn't, like then it just makes a great story. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like That's the bottom line for everything. At least we've got a good story for exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's set up the part that you're gonna read today. The section is from pretty much in the middle of the book and it is mm-hmm. from the chapter that is named for the short story, The Metamorphosis mm-hmm. by Kafka. And I will say you're incredibly generous because you do not assume any reader's knowledge of any of these classic <laughs> liter- classic pieces of literature. And so you help us learn. I remember I was supposed to read The Metamorphosis and I started reading it and I think I got so grossed out by the fact that he was a bug and I couldn't understand like, wait, what do you mean he's a bug? I don't get it. I was... I couldn't, I couldn't deal. So, that's so funny. <laughs> I love it. But that's, yes, you compare it to being adolescent and I go, oh, yes, okay, now I get it. <laughs> we, I think, have established your family immigrated to the U.S. in mm-hmm. 1975 from Vietnam before you had even turned two. Mm-hmm. We mentioned your younger brother named Lou and your parents and maybe just give us a little thumbnail about your relationship with your parents at this stage. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, this is 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's this is not a, a spoiler for the book. You know, my, mm-hmm. my father was physically abusive. And um, my mother never really, you know, did anything to protect us as kids. Um, so I think by the time I was in 10th grade, you know, we, you know, through some different interventions and things like that, we had sort of reached this kind of ceasefire physically, you know, where like my father wasn't really beating me and my brother, but, you know, we certainly were not close. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there was already kind of emotional damage for me and my father. And, you know, and then on top of that, I think, you know, is laminated all these sort of cultural gaps, you know, that like now, Mm -hmm. you know, as a 15 year old, I've, grown up in the United States, I am for all intents and purposes, like this sort of American teenager, you know, and mm-hmm. my parents are like, what the, you know, what the hell do we do with this kid? Right. right. <laughs> that's a, that, that sounds yeah, right Yeah, I think you? that's, that, yep, yeah, that's, that's a good setup there. <clears throat> and we're going to hear about your friend, Philip, and who is he and what, what does he play for you at this point? Yeah. So he was just like this other punk rock kid in my town. And, you know, I sort of discovered that, like, he liked reading, which I just, that didn't make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> and so he, like, lent me this book. He lent me, you know, Camus' The Stranger. And I was like, oh, like, you read books? Like, you know, and I, I'd always liked reading, but I sort of, like, kept it quiet and didn't really talk about it around my punk rock friends just because I thought, you know, it was just, like, nerdy and bookish. And, right. you know, who did that? Who talked about reading? <laughs> so yeah. he was almost uh, perhaps your... <clears throat> early role model for not being in one lane yeah yeah absolutely you know and I he's unfortunately dead now but I oh. wish I wish that he were alive I would yeah. love to um, talk to him about it but you know the nice thing is that his Philip's mother actually read the book and oh. Philip is his sort of pen name like yeah. I changed all the kids names in the book sure. but, but Philip's mom read the book knew exactly who her son was reached yeah. out to me and oh. it was and it felt like us you know she said it was like such a funny gift to be able to you know he's been dead for probably like 10 or 15 years to open up this book and then all of a sudden be revisited by him yeah um anyway it was really it was a nice um sort of reconnection with his mother that is that's that's very nice yeah yeah 
Um, and then the other thing about this section is this was kind of in the middle of you being grounded for six months, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. which is like the longest grounding I oh, have ever God. heard of. Oh, um, and you had been arrested. We won't yeah. go into the arrest at this point. People can read the book if they're curious about this. But what did the arrest and the grounding do for your social status at that point is the other kind oh, of Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I was just like, this makes me super cool you know like (laughs) like i just like uh, i mean i think i didn't even i didn't realize that there was any social cachet in getting arrested until you know well you don't you don't know and then all of a sudden you go to school and the kids are like i heard you got arrested whoa and you're like oh wait that that's a good thing you know like it's uh you know who knows yeah well with that we will hear fook tran read from saigon I flitted about in school doing only slightly more than the minimum for my classes, though I now had more time at home than I had before. Philip's injunction about AP U.S. history and school was planted in my mind, but it grew no firm roots and bore no fruits. My motivations at school were to maintain my grades so that when I was eventually paroled, I could go back to hanging with my crew, to skating, to going to shows without sneaking around in the underbrush of lies. In English class, Mrs. Ferguson was dragging the class's discussion through third period, straining heroically against the inertia of kids who hadn't read Great Expectations. At some point in the discussion, Mrs. Ferguson mentioned something about the search for meaning in one's life. My ears perked up. Remembering what I had read in Camus, I raised my hand. It sounds like it's a common question, those big questions about meaning and life. It's a theme that shows up a lot, right? Like in the existentialist writers, like Camus and uh, Sartre. Life is absurd. That's, that's their take on it, at least, on the meaning of life. I overpronounced Camus and stumbled over Sartre's name, pronouncing it more like Tartar. But I remembered a little bit about the existentialists, and I was cocksure that I had pronounced Camus correctly. Mrs. Ferguson tilted her head. Yes, I suppose that's true. It does have a connection with many other great books. She was gracious, given that I had anachronistically shoehorned an illusion about French existentialism into a Victorian English novel. I leaned forward at her observation that I had read a great book on my own, and I felt the class's energy turn toward me. Even my listless peers stopped their doodling and looked up. Fook, have you read much Camus or Sartre? Mrs. Ferguson asked with apparent intrigue. Uh, just the stranger, the myth of Sisyphus, and no exit so far. But I just borrowed the plague. I added the so far, thinking that it sounded smart, and hinted at an intent to read more, as vague and uncommitted as that intent was. She nodded approvingly. Well, thanks for making that connection, Fook. See me after class, please. I can recommend some other books for you if you like existentialism. A teenage boy who liked existentialism? She might as well have said that chocolate was delicious, or Freddie Mercury had a nice falsetto, or Dickens was wordy. Encouraged, I made a few more not-stupid remarks during our discussion, and after class she scratched out some titles on the back of an old mimeographed vocabulary quiz. You should read some of these works, too, if, if you like those other books you mentioned. It's a mix of novels and plays. I nodded gratefully as I read the list. 
Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead by Tom Stoppard, The Trial by Franz Kafka. Thanks! I'll, I'll definitely check these out. At the library. Pun intended, you know. She laughed. Well, good. Keep reading and making those connections. That's what it's all about. The connection. I read the Beckett and Stoppard plays in quick succession and incorporated them into our class discussions when I could. My limited literary credentials of five and a half books on existentialism being more than anyone else's reading list of none. No matter. My classmates gave me wide berth and listened with a respect that I had never been afforded. And Mrs. Ferguson checked in with me about my extracurricular reading. I was astounded and intoxicated by this shift in reality. What I read and what I said in the classroom mattered. It changed the way my classmates saw me, if they had seen me at all. And it changed the way my teacher saw me. And the truth was that I hadn't read that many books, nor was I some sonnet-quoting super-genius of English literature, but I sounded like one because I could refer to other books that I had voluntarily read, which apparently no one else did. Unsure of what else to read or what would sound impressive, I made certain to read our class's assigned books and whatever else Mrs. Ferguson recommended. I also figured that I could look up the authors in the library's encyclopedia just to be able to say something vaguely biographical about them in class discussion. My peers' esteem, which started bubbling in English class, boiled over into some of my other classes, and I happily rode the swells of admiration as my classmates realized that I wasn't some loser who was getting shit grades. The feeling that I had with my punk crew, that feeling of being part of something, that feeling of respect, had crept up in a place I wasn't expecting. The classroom. The sensation was fleeting, hard to pin down, but it felt real and complimented my crew's safeguard on the streets of our town. My classmates' open regard was public recognition of me and my intellect. Some kids seemed intimidated, and in my immaturity, their intimidation felt like respect, or something close enough for me. For the first time, I felt as though my peers were seeing another side of me, and this new side was earning their attention and esteem. It was a feeling that at that moment was completely unfamiliar to me. If I could command academic respect by reading six books, what would happen if I were to read 12? That fall and winter, I read everything I could, filling my name-dropping arsenal with Orwell, Bronte, Wolf, Nietzsche, and whoever else was recommended. I savored the academic clout that reading a book gave me in school. And beyond that, I discovered that I actually liked the books my teachers recommended to me. My perceived need to read changed, slowly and surprisingly, into a desire to read. A desire that I didn't fight. December 1988, St. Patrick's Church. For my mother, Christmas Eve Mass was the culmination of her piety and devotion. All the Sundays, the extra Masses we attended on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, they all climaxed in December at Midnight Mass. My mind wandered, as it usually did at the other Masses, skipping from games of See People I Know to thinking about song lyrics. I played a game where I tried to turn everything into a Smith's lyric. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the heir of a shyness that is criminally vulgar. 
He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and in the midst of life we are in debt, etc. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and heaven knows I'm miserable now. The chapel's lights dimmed as candles were fumbled in the dark. The liturgy ended as silent night swelled up from the choir and parishioners. The knot in my brow loosened. Usually, Sunday Mass was a mixture of boring and embarrassing. Boredom from the irrelevance that church and religion had for me. Embarrassment because it was the most public space that I was in with my family, and it was when I was most acutely aware of how much we didn't fit in. But Christmas Mass was different. It gave me a different lease on church and my family. In the dark of the church, one candle was lit from the front of the pews, and as the meager flame passed itself on, one small glimmer of light spread itself across the pews, dipping, catching, lighting like twilight stars ascending. In the gloaming of the service, we were silhouettes, all of us, all our features and differences erased. In the darkness, everyone looked the same, and I didn't think about being the only Vietnamese family in the congregational sea of white families. In the darkness of midnight mass, we were the same as everyone else. I breathed in the warm smell of wicks and wax and listened. Silent night. Barely awake when we got home, Lou and I gathered around the Christmas tree to open gifts before our drive the next day to Staten Island. My parents, ever the pragmatists, had given up on getting us actual presents a few years ago per our request and gave us money and envelopes to buy the gifts we wanted. Hey, $50. Hey, me too, all right. I had seen an ad in the Village Voice for a cool pair of boots, and Ulysses S. Grant was going to help me procure them. There's another present for you in your room. My mother patted me on the shoulder. Really? What? I was well beyond bikes with ribbons, and given my current state of home incarceration, I wasn't sure what it could be. I padded down the hall in my socks, my parents behind me, and opened my bedroom door. It was a stereo system. Brand new. Dual cassette decks. Turntable. I could play my records, dub cassettes for friends, and make mixtapes with mixed messages for girls. At the midpoint of my six-month sentence, my parents had gotten me a gift so specifically for me, I was astounded. I knelt down and my hands glided over the faux wood paneling and the plate glass door that enclosed the stereo components. I didn't understand why I deserved such a gift and felt a searing wave of guilt and sadness. I recognized my parents' forethought in buying me a stereo. Among the components between the dual cassette decks and the receiver was something I hadn't seen before. Whoa, I mustered a few words together. Is that a... That's a CD player, my dad said from behind my crouched position. Music is supposed to sound really good on a, a CD. None of my friends had CD players in 1988. I didn't own any CDs, but from working at the mall and seeing them in their giant oblong cardboard boxes, I knew that they were more expensive than records and tapes. I skipped over the CD player to look at the record player and the remote control on top of it. That's a remote control. Have you ever seen a stereo with a remote control? I hadn't. I now had a nicer stereo for my bedroom than my parents had for our living room. I didn't know what to say.
Still lingering in the doorway, my dad continued with his showroom sales pitch. I asked someone at work what kinds of speakers were good, and he told me that Advent speakers were very good. I was sold, but my silence sounded like indifference. I didn't say anything because I was too grateful. I didn't say anything because I, inmate Fook Min Tran, incarcerated at 1010 Harriet Street, couldn't believe that I got a brand new stereo for Christmas in the midst of being grounded. We can set it up when we get back from New York. I was still silent, and the void of words created a space between us. My father retreated away from that gap, and as he walked down the hallway, the gap widened into a chasm. I didn't thank him, and his shuffles put a distance between us that gulfed too wide for words. Muffled in the silken gauze of the ineffable, we lost an opportunity to connect with a kind word, with tenderness as father and son. Maybe we would have failed anyway, but I didn't even try. We didn't talk about how he felt or how I felt or where our relationship was. We never did. I had never heard my father say, I love you to me, and maybe this was his fumbling way of saying it. I didn't give him a chance to say anything, and I didn't acknowledge my suspicion that the magnanimity of the gift was my parents' attempt at mending our relationship. We see you, they wanted to say. We see you listening to music. We know that you love it. And this is for you because we love you. Their kindness was confusing for me. And it was easier for me to play the simple role of a teenager being angry with his parents. It was easier for me to fixate on the cool new stereo and not to think about why I got a cool new stereo from my parents. In the midst of my own changes, I wasn't able to change my perspective on my mom and dad to consider that my parents might be changing. Maybe they wanted to change the story of parents being the antagonists in their children's lives. We didn't have the script for that scene. I missed the cues for the dialogue, and the curtain closed on another moment of disconnection. March 1989, Carlisle High School. School was stomping along. On my way to gym class, I stopped at my locker to get my gym uniform, which was still unwashed months later and varying shades of off-white. No white socks. I couldn't find my gym socks. Fuck. Fucking Liam had borrowed them again earlier in the week and hadn't returned them. It was the third time this had happened, and our gym teacher strictly enforced the three strikes policy. Improper gym uniform three times in a marking period, and you failed gym. And this was my third gym class without the full uniform. I had everything except the socks, but that didn't matter to Coach Woods. In the gymnasium, I walked past Coach and his clipboard, hoping he wouldn't notice or would give me a pass with some unheralded kindness. No chance. He called our names and rattled off the uniform as he checked them off. Dran, white t-shirt, green shorts, white socks, light-soled sneakers, athletic supporter. Dran, where are your white socks? Sorry, I forgot them. I lent them to someone so that he could wear them. Coach didn't acknowledge my explanation. You know this makes three, Tran. You'll get a fail for this marking period. Fucking fuck. I had black socks on, but I needed to have white socks. Fucking white socks. I was going to fail gym class and not make honor roll. But I made honor roll with my academic grades, right? 
would I really be denied honor roll because of a technicality? In the days leading up to receiving my report card, I thought about trying to forge the honor roll stamp, but it was too mechanical and I had never forged anything. It would be too much of a gamble. Besides, my parents might understand the absurdity of the policy. They bought me a stereo while I was grounded, right? They didn't yell at me when I got arrested, right? There was a chance they might be sympathetic and I wagered on it. The chips were down. The Monday that our report cards came out, I checked to see if, in the Byzantine bureaucracy of Carlisle High School, someone had forgotten about my failing gym. No such luck. The U, unsatisfactory for gym, was clearly printed. The absence of honor roll also lingered there, striking in its absence. At least my other grades were good. Maybe my parents wouldn't notice. I thought about the stereo again, and the kindness behind it. It was genuinely benevolent. Maybe my father would surprise me again. At dinner time, my mother had made gasau with rice, stir-fried chicken and broccoli. My brother and I sat opposite each other, and my parents flanked us at the ends of the table. Did you get your report cards today? My father asked. My brother and I presented them. As my father reviewed Lou's grades, my vision tunneled and my mind raced. I was one month from finishing being grounded, and now this bullshit. I braced myself for further incarceration. Would they sentence me to another six months? That I could take, especially since I wasn't really trapped in my room anyway. But I started to wonder if he would ground me for a year, but still no matter. I felt confident that even that I could endure, whatever sentence he doled out. My father perused my report card. That's good. All A's. That's very good. Why is there a U for Jim? My brother passed the rice to me. I forgot white socks three times this marking period, so I was marked unprepared. I had everything else. Can you believe that? I had socks, but you need to have white socks. Crazy, right? Those gym rules. But you do have white socks. I do, but I lent them to Liam, and he forgot to give them back to me. That happened three times. I couldn't explain to them the adolescent politics behind lending Liam my socks. Liam was the first person who had stood up for me. I owed him. If Liam needed something, I gave it up. We had each other's backs. Oh, Liam Mahoney. I like him, my mother chimed in. Well, that was a good sign. I lent socks to a kid whom my mother liked. Your grades are good, though. You still made honor roll, right? My dad asked. Well, technically, no. I hoped that I could misdirect him with further explanations. But colleges won't look at honor roll anyway. As long as I have the grades and my SITs are good, this won't matter in the long run. It's just one marking period out of the six that we have, so in four weeks I'll be back on the honor roll. It really is just a technicality. I'm just not on the honor roll this marking period, but I will be again. No big deal. God, that was a fucking ramshackle defense. A long pause hovered over the table after I finished my lawyering. So, no honor roll? My dad asked. No. He sat in silence, the bowl of rice wafting steam before him, holding the report card, unable to look at me. My mother and brother had begun eating, trying to ignore the situation and diffuse the heavy silence by not chiming in. 
but my father continued to sit there expressionless as I tried to read his stubbled face, thinking that I was definitely going to get grounded for longer than I was anticipating. In my mind, I tried to guess how much longer, looking for a poker tell in his expression. I looked at his hands, flat and bone-thin on the table. Suddenly, the end of the table snapped with a loud crack as the blue and white bowls and chopsticks went flying, the bowls breaking. Bits of blue and white ceramic dragons and bats scattered in shards on the floor. The chopsticks skittered with high rimshot clacks like a drum roll. My father pushed his chair back quickly. My report card flew onto the floor, covered in food. My father had raised his arms and slammed them down so hard that the leaf at the end of the table had snapped. He had broken the table. His whole face twitched with rage. He and I stood up simultaneously and he lunged for me, trying to grab my arm. This was definitely not going to be a grounding. I moved quickly to my right as he kept lunging for me, my brother and my mother still seated, though my mother was now Vietnamesing, Honey, please stop. Dear, please stop. Years of playground instincts kicked in from avoiding the bigger kids and bullies. Don't let him grab you. But this wasn't a game. My father lunged for me again, and again I ran to the right, both of us sliding in our socks. Face to face, he lunged left, and I moved left, sliding again on the linoleum. What the fuck is going on, I thought. He stopped chasing me and yanked a kitchen drawer open, brandishing a pair of scissors. Scissors? What the fuck was he going to do with... He lunged for me with the scissors. Did he try to stab me? He swung at me again with a wide arc, scissors pointing forward. Fucking shit, he's trying to stab me. We circled around the broken kitchen table three times, kicking shards of bowls and clumps of rice. Come here! I said, come here! He kept lunging at me with the scissors, missing. My mother's cries of stop it and her sobbing were the background to my father's primal grunts as he lunged with the scissors. Huh! 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 His face was crimson, his neck veins bulged against his collar. His tousled hair lurched upward each time he jumped forward with the scissors. Lou had retreated silently to the perimeter of the kitchen and hid his body around the corner. What the fuck is going on? I ran out of the kitchen and into the nearest room, the bathroom, and locked the door. I backed away from the door, out of breath, and slouched on the toilet. I heard my dad standing outside the door, and he struck it a few times, rattling the flimsy wood. Jesus Christ. He waited outside the bathroom door for a moment and stormed off down the hall. Doors slammed, crashing, splintering sounds. I opened the door an inch toward the noise, which was crackling from my bedroom at the end of the hall. From the hall, I saw my dad seething with fury. He was snapping my records in half. I felt sick. A small pile of records and their sleeves were accumulating at his feet. Vinyl snapped unevenly in half, cardboard sleeves bent. Hair disheveled, panting, he knew how to hurt me. Everything that I had curated over the last two years lay strewn across my bedroom floor, broken and sliced into pieces. After a few album dismemberments, he stopped taking the records out of their sleeves. He snapped them whole until he heard the vinyl crack inside. Some he threw against the wall. Posters and punk show flyers 
were fluttering down from the wall in large triangular slices, the confetti of destruction. Susie and the Banshees, gone. Public image, torn. Never mind the bullocks, ripped. My closet door yanked open and the scissors clicked their edges together. My t-shirts began to tear and ribbon as the scissors did their work. My leather jacket was filleted. I was devastated. I couldn't let him know. Don't show him. Boys don't cry. I didn't know whether he would try to attack me again with the scissors. I wasn't going to wait around to see what would happen next. I grabbed my skateboard, a flannel shirt, and sneakers by the front door. I was getting the fuck out of my house if I wanted to survive. My face was flush. Where are you going? Where are you going? My mother asked, half crying. I didn't tell her because I didn't know. Lou wasn't in my periphery, and I guessed that he had gone into his room and closed his door. Halfway out of the house, I remembered. I had a geometry quiz tomorrow. Shit. Was I seriously thinking about that right now? In the scariest moment of my life, in my most primal survival moment, I thought about school, like Gregor worrying about how to get to work on time. I paused briefly at the door, stepped back inside to grab my backpack and books, and skated away. Thank you so much for reading that. Sure. I have to take a deep breath. <laughs> it's really, um, really, really powerful. And um, I think that, I'm guessing it's not a coincidence that these two really emotional scenes at sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum were kind of back to back. And I'm wondering, because... I always I I love reading what other writers um, say when they are saying some of the most difficult things they have to say, <laughs> and um, which one which one was harder for you to write the the stereo gift or the night your dad lunged at you with the scissors? Oh gosh, that's such a great question, uh, and no one's ever asked me that. And I would definitely, I think the answer might be counterintuitive, but uh -huh. I think maybe because you asked that you maybe could guess that it's the stereo. I think like yeah. the stereo scene was really, um, that was the first time. You know, I, I had told the the knife story in, in sort of varying versions of it, like on stage, mm -hmm. uh, you know, publicly, um, but the stereo scene. Um, was the first time that I had ever sort of written about that and to kind of like unpack that and do a little bit of a, for lack of a better word, like a post-mortem, mm -hmm. you know, on, yeah. on on who I was as a teenager. Um, is hard. It's hard. You know, it's ugly yeah. for sure. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, it's very vulnerable. I think when we write things, it's easy. I shouldn't say easy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um one <laughs> nothing yeah. it's definitely not easy <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. um but maybe the the go-to default is the ways that wrong was done to us um mm. but the i have found sometimes the things that we are most unhappy with or see those deficits within ourself um that's that's even harder. I, I don't know, in the sort of we're all our own worst critic kind of 
mentality. So that was why I was curious about both of those scenes. Um, and as you were reading it, the thing that kind of stuck out to me that I hadn't noticed before as I've read through this a few times was the part about mentioning seeing your parents change. And that's another thing that I think is hard for kids to see their parents change and perhaps even for the better. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there's more you have to say about that or <laughs> yeah it's not really a question but no yeah i know i think you're you're spot on i mean i think it's you know the metaphor i think is you know i mean uh, of many right that you could choose is you know you're like trying to you know build this bridge as you're driving on it right mm, and yeah and, and relationally like i think especially um i can't speak for all vietnamese people <laughs> but right? certainly at least in my family um, and I, I can say, I think confidently that in Vietnamese culture, um, relationships, especially familial relationships are, are deeply hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and I think it's really hard for parents to make adjustments and to transition to having any, a different kind of relationship with their kids other than, mm -hmm. you know, sort of this like Confucian hierarchical one. Right. Uh, you know, I want to say, like, I, I could fancy seeing, like, my, my parents wanting to connect with me and my brother, but yeah. not just not knowing how right. culturally, right? Mm. Um, and that's, you know, and like, as an adult now, having gone to lots of therapy, like, mm -hmm. I can sort of recognize yeah. the tragedy of that. Yes. Um, and they still try to, you know, and I, I think, like, it's connected a little bit with, like, that love language. Like, if you've ever read about that, you know, that they're... That, that different know. people express caring and love in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you can be a giver or like a, a teller or mm. a, uh, and And then I think like the disconnect is that, you know, my parents, you know, could never say it, but they showed it to us in lots of ways. And, yeah, you know, for me, like, I think I'm so highly verbal. I was like, you know, I don't care about stuff. Like, can, can you guys just like give me some emotional support or like yeah. tell me that you care about me or like, you know, a, right. affirm, you know, how I'm feeling, you know, so... I'm not familiar with the the thing that you mentioned about oh, yeah, the, the, the love languages. Right. Yeah. But that, yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, that makes a lot of sense to see mm -hmm. that they were reaching out across sort of this chasm that you, you couldn't bridge it. Like you, you physically didn't know how to respond to them reaching out in this way. Yeah. And I think it's hard. What's hard is to look back at that time. Um, and to not know still, you know, I, I think I used to feel like I wish that I had done more or I wish that I had known, you know, been savvier or just mm -hmm. more forgiving. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point, I, I think about that to a point in which I then think, well, I was a 15 year old kid. Like, mm -hmm. like how much yes. do we, you know, like how much emotional know, intelligence, right. yeah. you know, how much of that heavy lifting am I supposed to do or should I have been doing? Right. And, and right. I just... Um, and so I think that really informs my own parenting, you know, uh, that like at, yeah. at some point, like, you know, I can only expect my eight and 11 right. year old daughters to, you know, know so much. And, yes. um, and it's not about meeting them halfway, you know, like I think right. I need to meet them 75% of yeah, the way. Well, right? um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So my other question, you reference your parents are still around hmm. and what, so I, I'm really curious what your relationship is like with them now and especially in light of the book. Like how, 
have they are they aware of it? Have they read it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, this sure, is sure. my my yeah. deep dark secret question. Yeah, for know? sure. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. It's um yeah, I think it's funny when I uh, I was asked once, someone said, um, are your parents still alive cuz you sure write you you write about them like they're dead, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, yeah. w- meaning that with the kind of candor and yes. kind of like no no you know, no fucks given. <laughs> um, no, they're still alive, very much alive. And, yeah. um, but I think no one was surprised by the book that I wrote only because, you know, I, I am so much like the sort of outsider slash black sheep in the family uh, that, um, like this, this book very much is on brand for me. Right, right. <laughs> like it totally yeah. tracks, it tracks with my story. Um, <laughs> And uh, they knew that, you know, I the writing project, you know, started. I let everybody know in the family. I was like, hey, I'm working on a memoir. And, you know, uh, you know, and I, I said very specifically, you know, that I was only going to write about events that I was witness to or were a participant in, like, yeah. with the exception of one story. Like, I know that I wasn't going to tell anyone's story that wasn't mine to tell. Yeah, um, yeah. And my parents, you know, I sent them this pretty long questionnaire because, like, I wanted to do research and get the timeline right and, mm-hmm. you know, get, you know, sort of factual things right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very forthcoming about a lot of it. You know, I have, like, very long text threads with my dad about, like, you know, my dad actually kept a diary from when they fled Vietnam. So he knew, wow. like, he knew like the day and the time that, like, we boarded wow. transports and things like that. It was yeah. very... Like he's, <laughs> like he's kind of, he's very strange in that way. Um, well, he was a lawyer. He was, yeah, yeah. So, he, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he wanted mean, to document yeah. all the paperwork. All he wanted, all the paperwork. That's so true. Uh, and so I think once like our sort of relationship fell apart as like a teen, you know, when I was a teenager, I uh-huh. mean, we, you know, we never really went through periods where we didn't talk, but I've never, I think once I stopped being close to my parents, I was never really close to my parents. Um mm-hmm. And that's not to say that we're estranged in the way that, like, say, Tara Westover is estranged right. from her family, I think. Yeah. Um, like, I still talk to my parents. We have, like, a text thread going on and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. but we're not, like, emotionally close. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the book came out, they never said, like, hey, we read it or we didn't read it. Mm. And so, like, after almost, like, nine months, uh, you know, finally, like, on some text message, I, I texted them and I said... Hey, have you guys read the book yet? You know, like it's just right. so funny, right? Like, so they like were aware of it. Like, oh, you, oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? Yeah. And like, um, they even came to like the Zoom launch oh, and everything. Wow. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And but like, they never said like, "Hey, good job," or like, yeah. "Hey, we read your book." Like, it was just kind of like crickets, you know. Yeah. So, so finally, after nine months, I said, "Have you guys actually read right, the book?" I'm right. just, I'm curious, you know. Like, you, you don't have to read it. It's, uh, and then my dad just texted me back, and he said, "Yes, I read it." It was very painful. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. That was the only conversation wow. we had about it. Yeah. I can't tell <laughs> you how much this helps me. <laughs> sure. No, I... It's... I, yeah. Um, I'm glad. I I think it's hard. And uh, I think it's so much of it depends on what kind of relationship a person right. has with their family, right? Right. Um, but, I mean, I'll say, I guess, I think that it really exemplifies that there's so many types of love which is why that love language thing is very interesting Mm. that like some people become estranged from their parents and some people are very close with their parents and some people have you know I guess I'll I'll sort of um 
I'll give you a little bit about no, please. My yeah. my my mom is like the most loving person I have ever met. I mean, she is huh. far and away the most loving person I know. Um, yet there. I feel similar to what you're saying about like sort of this represents who you are in the family because I do feel like I'm the the naysayer like I'm the person that always has to bring up all the bad stuff and has to because she is so positive with everything that she feels sort of like in a religious sense that it manifests positivity um and so I have to like be the counterbalance to all that positivity by being incredibly negative um <laughs> geez that's a that's a lot of work yes it, it really is <laughs> um and so so it's funny like amidst all of my story of Christian science childhood I'll just mm-hmm. sort of call it yeah she holds out great I think hope and love that at some point I'll come back and that it doesn't, it, it sort of doesn't matter what I could ever do. She would still love me. So that's like mm. at once a very foundational thing. But at the yeah. same time, I feel like there's so much about me and my, all my negativity, <laughs> you know, that is not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why like, for you to say, you know, your parents saw who you were. They saw you falling in love with this music and what it meant to you. And that was huge to get that mm. stereo. So I I learned so much from reading other people's words when they say really brave things. And you have said so many really brave things. Oh, and thanks. Thanks. I, um... I just can't thank you enough, and and, and I love chatting with you about it oh, all. Thanks, it is thanks. like this is the best. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. I mean, it sounds like you know. I mean, to give you some encouragement, it sounds like you're. I think it sounds like you're really wrestling with exactly the right thing. Uh, mm. And I think you know. And I felt like it was such a. If this makes sense, like if for me, like in in writing about my parents, you know, in their fullest capacity is as humans right Mm -hmm. like i'm in trying to capture the ways in which they were so incredibly strong and resilient and all the ways in which they were deficient and negligent um it's it's hard and and i think that the magic though i think is and the humanity like lies in that that dissonance um for for me too right you know for all of us so i think it was really affirming and powerful for me to for to do that for them um and for myself too so so it sounds like you're you're on the right track oh thank you (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah. appreciate that so my my final question that i will ask um after after all that um is what was most daring for you about this book um gosh yeah i think giving myself permission and encouragement to write it Mm -hmm. um I just felt like, um, you know, for so long, I just didn't think that I, you know, my, my feeling was always like, who the fuck am I to write a book? Like, mm-hmm. who am I to tell, who wants to read my story anyway? So I think once I got over that, you know, and I don't know if it's cultural or if it's just sort of like the Gen Xer in me who's just like, mm-hmm. nobody cares about anything, anything, everything sucks anyway. <laughs> like, I don't, right, right. Um, you know, so I think once I got over that, 
then it was really easy. Like just like the initial, like, mm. ugh, you know, the, the hump of like just getting started, you know, yeah. because I think like once I'm engaged in a process, I swing for the fences like every time. Yeah. Um, but when I'm sort of front and center and it's my story and it's me and, and then it's hard for me to be like, Ugh, who am I? Like, who cares? Like, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that was tough. And sort of a, a follow up to that, knowing that you had been approached to write it. Was there, did you have additional pressure on yourself? Cause that can be a tough spot to be expecting to deliver something. If you are asking yourself those questions. Yeah, that is so, such, so interesting. I thought, not I guess not really only right. in the sense that I I'm not afraid of um like the failure I I'm not really like I you know I make mistakes all the time and mm. um and things you know don't always turn out the way I want them to and, mm-hmm. and that's okay like I think I I also tr- always try to sort of find like a the lesson or the learning you know right. um space or the learning mindset and and those sorts of things so i'm not afraid of like doing something publicly and sort of falling on my face oh, so for whatever reason incredible advantage <laughs> just i mean i guess you know what's the worst that could happen you know like i i feel like you know no adventure starts with yes or with no right yeah, no, right, no right. adventure starts with no right yeah. like, so I, I like to say yes to as much as i possibly can that, that is great yes my poor wife though my poor wife Aww. she's like when are you gonna say no to something and i'm like i don't know <laughs> we'll find out it's yeah we will find out well, yeah that for is sure great yeah the lesson of yes that that is another one because i think that i i certainly have erred on caution a lot. Mm, yeah. <laughs> very, very much. I've always been the overly cautious person. I mean, and I think even, I don't know, quickly just dip back into please, sort of please, your yeah. um, your background in a small town America. And I don't know, as a boy, um, like you were in there like having fights with kids and, you mm-hmm. know, bullies and getting picked on. And I spent... I mean, in a small town, and I felt very vulnerable. And I spent most of my childhood with girls. I mean, plenty of girls get beat up too. But I was just a really hesitant, shy, like, hider. I I would hide Mm. all the time. So I think as someone whose defense mechanism or whatever is, like, duck and cover or something, Mm. um, to step out in front of something is, like, okay, I'm at last trying to trying to get there so yeah that sounds amazing i well i would um i would love to uh maybe when the live storytelling stuff you know Mm -hmm. fires up again in portland i'm gonna i might uh nominate you with your permission oh boy because i think that's really you know i would love that honestly because i would love to see you do it (laughs) i i there is i really enjoy reading my own stuff I have enjoyed it a great deal. One of the things I will even declare, I really want to organize somehow locally, like a daring to tell reading event. And it would be like a a little local kind of somebody reads their stories and... I just I love that so yeah put my yeah name up. do it I absolutely will yeah there's Thank and there's you. so many like these like, of these like locally or there's one in Lewiston called the corner oh okay um there's yeah and so there's one here in Portland called Sound Bites oh, which okay. has done which it's been at the frontier and also here in Portland so yeah. yeah there's there's lots of opportunities but but for me like that was really like the training ground for both like the vulnerability piece and right. like the 
sharing your story publicly and also just like the the honing of the craft of like yes. you have seven minutes like you really just need well, to tell like the, yeah. se- <laughs> that's the scary part see it's actually yeah. the te- like the live storytelling that to me is a little scarier than if i was reading something like yeah. i enjoyed the reading there's something about that that's yeah you know, that's the sweet yeah, yeah. spot for me for so. sure for sure well that's great all right well Thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. I can't thank you enough for coming on Daring to Tell. Is there anything else people want to get in touch with you or any other ways of of other stuff you have coming up or anything (laughs) like that? I don't know. What can we help you with? Yeah, I've got uh, children's books coming out. I'm going to get back to working on my novel. And, you know, I mean, uh, there's... Uh, my website, my writer's website, fookskywalker.com is always a great way to, you know, keep keep on top of what I'm up to. But um, I will definitely not be in the same lane that you found me in. <laughs> so Excellent. Stay tuned. Look out. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you so much, Michelle. Oh, geez. So clearly I am still working some stuff out. As I say again and again, this podcast is my personal endeavor to keep on working it out and to think about that place that Fook Tran mentioned, where we find our humanity, which I do think is between our best and our worst moments. So I really hope this conversation was meaningful to you as well. Of all the things that I loved about this section that Fook Tran read for us today, um, perhaps one of the things that sticks with me the most are the words of Fook's English teacher, Mrs. Ferguson, who said, keep reading and making those connections. That's what it's all about, the connections. I couldn't agree more. If you would like to make a connection with Fook Tran, his website is Fook skywalker.com that's p-h-u-c skywalker.com and his tattoo studio in portland maine is tsunami tattoo.com to make a connection with me you can follow me on twitter i am at michelle rado or you can send me an email through my website michelle i would love to hear your thoughts on this or any of the episodes next month is a conversation with writer Elena Dillon about her new memoir called My Body is a Big Fat Temple. Look out. Talk about Tsunami. She is a pregnancy truth-telling Tsunami. It is a powerful and very thoughtful look into her pregnancy experience. So I hope you will follow Daring to Tell so that you'll get that episode when it comes out next month, as all new episodes do on the first Tuesday of the month. Until then, thank you for making it all the way to the close and for daring to listen. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground